Well, my name's David again, and I am one of Hillcrest's missionaries sent up to uh, up at Western uh, on the team there, and it's a privilege to be here. Um, I'm also married to my wonderful wife, Shelly, of 20, almost 25 years, coming in a couple weeks, so yeah, um, so we're honored to be here, and it's a privilege for me to be here and share with you this morning. So we're in a series called Prophets and Kings, and um, we're looking at some of the stories of the early kings and early prophets. It's found in the book of First and Second Kings, so uh, which is you know First, Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. You probably just you know you could follow on the screen, or you can look it up in your phone if you got it. Okay. Um, and one of the key questions that gets asked in these books, really gets asked in the whole Scripture, is will we trust God? Will humanity trust God? We're going to trust something in our lives. It's just what it means to be human. But will we trust God? And this question is going to get asked particularly of the kings of Israel as we're reading through these books. Will the kings trust? Will they trust in God? Because they kind of set the tone for the nation. As go the king, so goes the nation. Or will they end up trusting their own judgment? which God warns will ultimately not lead to a very happy ending of things. And of course, in all these stories, we're also being asked, as we read the stories, will we trust God? Who are we trusting in our lives? And, you know, uh, trusting isn't always the easiest thing to do uh, for us, the most natural thing. I was thinking, uh, I was talking with Shelley over, you know, the, the the times where I've not trusted her good and sage and Wise counsel in our marriage. Yes, it's, it's, I have to confess sometimes that's true um, of me. Now, I remember and I, we were talking about one time uh, when our oldest son, Josiah, who's now 21, but when he was in first grade and he had, he had his first new bike and he was learning to ride it and you know, it was cool. And so I just felt this need to try to help him, I don't know, show him how to do it. I don't even know if he needed help, but I was going to do that. And, but I was going to do that by getting on the bike and riding it and right, you know, instant reaction. Oh, and, and Shelly got wind of it and she's like, no, no, that's, that's, that's not a good idea. My best friend was there. So I don't know if I was just showboating or what, or if I was trying out, you know, for a circus clown, ride those little bikes, but I got on the bike and probably within like half a block, it was the end of the ride because the seat broke off. Yeah, my son's first bike, and I broke his seat. Shelly's not happy. Josiah's not happy. I'm not happy. Nobody's happy. Ah, and there were lots of other stories. We, we had a good time thinking of stories, okay? And guys, maybe some of you right now who are married, you might be relating to this, and you're getting an elbow from your wife, and ah, yeah, you know? Now, in a much more serious way, uh, we're going to look at Solomon's story Whereas he had to wrestle through who was he going to trust. So we're going to look at his stories in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11. We're going to mostly be in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Third king of Israel, uh, uh, fellow campus pastor Joanna, she introduced us to Solomon last uh, two weeks ago. And most people have some idea, yeah, he wrote the Proverbs. He was a really wise king. Um, uh, maybe it's because he had all his wives, and so he listened to them. Ah, uh, maybe not, if you know the story. Okay, 
Um, he'd been given a special measure of wisdom from God. Uh, last week, Tim told us about this great temple that he built for the worship of Yahweh, Israel's God, and we learned some cool things about that. When you go and you read Solomon's story, and he at the dedication of the temple, he just prays this amazing prayer. I mean, it's a very long prayer, but it's an amazing prayer of faith as he lifts this temple and, and, and lifts God up in it. And he urges the people at that point to trust God fully with their hearts. And really, and he ends up receiving two special visitations from God. I mean, he's got everything clicking. And when you read the story, you go, it's going well for the king and for Israel. They're kind of in a time of unprecedented peace, and there's power, and there's prosperity. In lots of ways, Solomon was really, he was the ideal king. He was what everybody was looking for in a king. And there was a part of me was thinking, man, that would be, in our presidential campaign, boy, did we have some Solomons? Okay, well, I'm not going to go there anymore, okay? But, boy, to have somebody who, who has strong leadership, right? Yet, and here comes the big yet, yet when we get to chapter 11, we find that despite Solomon's great start, all these good things going for him, things are starting, they're unraveling. They're first unraveling in his own heart, and then we'll find out they're going to unravel for the entire nation. So let's pick it up. This is chapter 11, and we'll start at verse 4, okay? As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And we jump down to verse 9, kind of the end result of this. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Now, if we would go on and read the rest of the chapter and the chapters after that, we find out that, in fact, that is what happens. The, the, the kingship and the kingdom falls into disarray. They split into two parts, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The beautiful temple that Solomon built is destroyed. And both Judah and Israel carried off as exiles into foreign countries. And you get this sense when you read 1 Kings that really this traces back to Solomon. Now, there are other kings who have made messes of stuff, but really it traces back to Solomon. The fact that his heart did not fully trust God allowed, there was a division in his heart, and that division of his heart became a division in the kingdom. The inner reality became the outer reality of the kingdom, the nation of Israel. And I just want to pause. I won't take too much time on this, but I want us to pause when we think about that. That the decisions we make, the stuff that goes on inside of our hearts, never just affects us alone, does it? It always has an impact on those around us in our, relation, our relational world and the circumstances we find ourselves in. We're always influencing and being influenced. And so it's a good, as we go through the rest of this time, to think through What's going on in my heart? And, and, and how is that influencing either for good or for not so good those around me? 
So, but let's ask this question. How, how does this happen? You, you know, you go back and you read those chapters and it's just looking so good for Solomon. So how does this wise and God-fearing king end up just crashing and burning and taking the whole nation with him? When you first read these chapters of Solomon, it just feels like when you get to chapter 11 that all of a sudden Solomon just kind of one day chooses to fall into idolatry, to worship other gods and abandon God. But it's probably helpful to remember that when it comes to big failures in people's lives, they're usually preceded by a number of smaller compromises and bad decisions that are stretched out over a period of time. You know, so it's a rare day when, you know, a husband wakes up and just, you know, decides, I think I'm going to have an affair. I think I'm going to blow up my marriage. Yeah, why not? Usually it starts with, you know, maybe a little flirty conversation or an email or a Facebook message and things kind of progress and then it's, it's a coffee date and, and on and on it goes, right? There's a progression that usually happens. A closer reading of Solomon's story shows that his abandonment of God did not just, you know, happen overnight, but it actually was a, a, the outcome of a persistent pattern of not trusting God of choosing to ignore God's commands. Uh, Ian Proven, who wrote a commentary on this, he, he put it this way. He says, if, speaking of Solomon, eventually his accumulated individual indiscretions turned into outright apostasy, which apostasy just means turning your back on God and rejecting God, turns into outright apostasy as he turned away from God. Accumulated individual indiscretions piling themselves up. And it's interesting, as we read through 1 Kings and the story of Solomon, the author of Solomon's story is going to actually give us clues showing kind of these accumulated indiscretions. But he's just going to show us this. He's not going to directly tell us anything's bad until we get to chapter 11. He's just going to give us little signals, little signs. And so the way to kind of see this is you have to read Solomon's story in one hand and then you open up to another passage in the Bible, Deuteronomy 17. It's obvious that the author of Solomon's story has this in mind as he's recounting Solomon's story. And so we're going to jump there, just look at a couple verses that may help us as we go back to Solomon's story, okay? So Deuteronomy 17, there's a passage in there where God is giving instructions to kings, Kind of a, 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 a how-to manual for kings, okay? And there's some specific things there to do. So we pick up in verse 16 and following. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to get more of them. For the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Okay, so those are the instructions for the king. And there's a few other things there. And then at the, after that, the kings are told to write this all down, make their own handwritten copy, keep it by their bedstand and read it at night so they can remember how to be a good king in Israel. Okay? So three things to be aware of. Don't acquire a great number of horses, especially bad as those Egyptian horses. 
That's really where the good horses are, actually. Did you know that? Biz Shide came to me at middle service and said, do you know why, why they go to Egypt to get them? Because that's where all the good horses come from. come from. And that's true even now. I mean, generationally, now they've been brought over here, but originally they came from Egypt. So that's where the good horses are. Okay? And don't take a lot of wives and don't accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. These had the power to draw a king's heart away from God. Okay, so do we, we've got that. Now let's return to Solomon's story. And let's all of a sudden watch for the signals that the author is going to show us, but not tell us until we get to chapter 11, okay? So horses, and horses is a big deal, right? Horses are power. Horses get work done. Horses pull chariots. Horses have horses, right? So Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, that's a lot of horses. That's a lot of good fertilizer for your gardens, okay? And guess what? These horses were imported from Egypt. Oh, there's a signal. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, then we jump um, to another verse, and it says, people would bring gifts to Solomon. Guess what they brought? They'd bring silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, and horses. Hmm. So he's starting to get a lot of horses here. Gold. When you read Solomon's story, the word gold is mentioned 31 times in those chapters. It's pretty obvious that the, the author uh, of Solomon's story wants us to understand how much gold Solomon has and then how he's using that gold in kind of a personal, to kind of personally uh, you know, enrich himself. So just a few sample verses. There's many more, but here's just a few. Chapter 9 they sailed to Ophir and brought back 420 talents of gold, which they delivered to King Solomon. Uh, another verse, Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophir. Another verse, the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. And I don't think we should get weirded about the 666. I just, yeah, everybody's like, ah, see, he's in cahoots with the devil. Well, I, it's 666 talents. Make of it what you will, okay? A talent weighs about 75 pounds, so that's about 50,000 pounds of gold, which in today's standard is a billion dollars. Solomon was making a billion dollars every year. Boom. Right? Solomon's wealth, though, he's using it in kind of in ways that lead to personal excess. It isn't just for the prosperity of the nation. It's becoming more and more something he's consuming for himself. And so we read some other verses. He's making hundreds of these small shields of hammered gold made out of, uh, uh, shields made out of gold, okay? And he's putting them in his palace. He's, he's got his throne covered with ivory and he's going to overlay it with fine gold, Right? Solomon's goblets were gold. All the household articles in his palace were pure gold. They didn't make things out of silver. Ah, who needs silver? We've got gold. And we got so much silver and gold, it doesn't matter. Mm. Gold, gold, gold cups. You need them, right? Got to have them. Gold toilets. You got to have them. Man, whew. Gold, all right. Mm. Then wives. Now, this is the one we know about Solomon. Most people know, yeah, that guy had a lot of wives. We're told 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't even know. They'll probably make a show about that at some point, okay? So, now, we've got to understand that this probably more than a sexual thing 
although it probably was that too, but more likely was a political thing, that you would make strategic alliances with other nations by marriage, by marriage right? Okay, so you don't want this nation to, you know, if you can marry one of the king's daughters, hey, we might actually not go to war. Guess what? Chapter 3. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Oh. And then we're told in chapter 11, where we're getting a much more direct statement. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women, besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. They were from the nations which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. So what have we been shown? Horses, which equals power. Gold, we know about gold, right? And then the political alliances. Mm. Remember the issue that they're wrestling with, with the kings and with all of us is, would the king trust in the Lord? Would he do what was told him in Deuteronomy 17? Or would he seek to establish his kingship and the kingdom by the wisdom of the day? And the wisdom of the day said, absolutely, get your horses. That's power. And that also will, will build your armies and pull your chariots. Get your gold. That's how you're going to buy your horses and your chariots. Plus, you can make cool things with them for your house. And then, by all means, make strategic alliances with other nations through marriage. Solomon was just doing what the kings do. That is what you do. And in one sense, it kind of, well, yeah, it makes sense, right? It's a worldly sense, but it makes sense. So I wonder, you know, for Solomon, at some point, I wonder what he did with Deuteronomy 17. He just put it aside. It's like, well... I got a lot of horses. That's really inconvenient to read that. I think I'm done reading that. Maybe. Maybe he just became complacent and said, that's fine for the people, but not for me. Or maybe I wonder if fear just began to creep into his heart. He started to have it all and he couldn't let go of it. This is a thing that seems to be bringing stability and security to the kingdom and to his kingship. I, surely I can't part with these things now. Whatever it was, in the end, Solomon chose worldly wisdom. And the author of Kings wants us to know this. Solomon the wise became Solomon the fool for doing it. Ironically, the very thing that Solomon feared, the kingship and the kingdom blowing up, the very thing that drove him to get the horses and the gold and the wives, that was the very thing that undid him. That's the great irony of the story. It was his unbelief, his distrust, that he couldn't really trust God. He couldn't do it God's way. And so it does. We have to pause and ask ourselves some questions, don't we? Because that's why we're being told these stories. It's for our own lives. Have you ever been to a place where you felt like, ah, I, you know, I know what the scripture says, but ah, I think I'm okay. I got this. I'm, I'm still going to church. We're good. We're good, Right? I've been a Christian a long time. I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm good. I don't think I have to worry about that. Or have you ever felt fear creep into your heart? What if God doesn't come through? I'm going to put all my eggs in his basket, and what if all of a sudden this thing just goes south? Man, I don't know. Maybe I need a backup plan. Have you ever found yourself wanting to look to someone or something else to really bring stability and security in your life? Oh, you'll tack God on, but ah, 
Got to have, you know, my, my backup plan. Really, that's what Solomon did. It's not like he quit worshiping Yahweh. He just added a few other things, plus a few other gods in there, just to cover it all. And really, it led to idolatry, and it led to disaster for King Solomon and for the entire nation. Now, we may read that and go, well, you know, idolatry, I mean, that's a thing of the past, right? I mean, uh, I mean we don't have little statues and stuff, at least not here in America. Hmm. Oh, well, yes, we do. Ours are a little more subtle, but we have them, right? What, what, is an, what is an idol? Well, an idol doesn't have to be a statue. It can be anything our hearts will deify, anything that ultimately replaces God for what we're going to trust in. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he, he says this. I think it's helpful. He says, idolatry takes place... When the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Now understand they're not bad things. It's when they become the center and the thing we must have. It could look like preoccupation with money, being driven to achieve, you know, achieve a certain income or standard of living, that's the central drive. It could be compulsively having to maintain a certain physical appearance. It could be obsessively turning to food or to drink or some other substance to find your relief. It could be just glorifying sex or power or status above. It's kind of the chief goal of everything. It could be an addiction to work or a certain hobby or to a certain technology, even to Christian service and ministry. It could be a sign that we have an idol in our heart because idols are the things that we ultimately trust and believe will bring us happiness. That is our God. Idols are the things we can't imagine finding stability and security without. So we got it. We have to, you know, the story... Solomon demands we ask this question. What is it that I trust? We're going to trust something. That's just what it means to be human. We're going to trust something. Ultimately, what is it that we're trusting? What, and what is it we're tempted to trust other than God? What are our horses? What, what's our goal? What are our strategic alliances? What is it that gives you a sense of being in control and giving you certainty in life outside of God? Here's, here's the sad irony. The Solomon story shows us, and I think you know, our own lives will show us, show us that idols always end up enslaving us. We always need, a little, we need more and more of that God to make us feel secure. A little more money, a little more power, a little more of this. It, it's, it, it forms an addiction. And so look at your addictions, look at where you're terrified in life, trace it back, you'll probably find an idol, or at least a temptation towards an idol there. And our gods, those gods always let us down. That's what Solomon's story teaches us. Those gods let us down. What does 2008 teach us? Ah, we had a bunch of investors who who worshipped in the temples of Wall Street. And their gods were their prophets. Their gods were the market. And when it all came crashing down, so did their gods. Should be a wake-up call, right? Yeah, we see it when somebody idolizes another human being. 
And then that person, you know, shows no more interest in them or leaves them. And they're devastated. That's, you know, idolatry will just wipe us out when, when that thing is taken from us. And all idols are really, they're just God pretenders. They promise a lot, but they never deliver. Ultimately, God says, I'm the only one who can make good on what I'm promising. won't always be easy, but I will make good. I will bring safety, security, and significance. So I had to think, where, how are we going to end this story? Because Solomon's story, to be honest, this just is not a happy ending. It doesn't end well for, for Solomon or for Israel. So where does this sad story of his indiscretions and his idolatry, where, where is the good news in us, in it for us? Solomon failed, the kings failed, Israel failed, and if we'll be honest at times, you and I fail. I'm not up here saying I don't, I don't have my issues. I, I do too. tend to want to put my trust in something other than God. And I failed. So what's the good news? The good news, it's the Sunday school answer, is Jesus. He is the good news. Because there's only one, one and only one who has never, never failed. Never failed to trust God. Jesus, he is the king, another king. In fact, Jesus says when he speaks of himself, another one greater than Solomon, and he points to Solomon, another one greater than Solomon is in your midst, and he's speaking of himself. When we look at Jesus, the good news is he didn't fail. He didn't fail, and he won't fail us. We watch Jesus, we read his life, and realize he never turned his back on God. He lived a life of complete devotion and trust. He was tempted, just like all those other kings, just like we are. He was tempted to trust himself, to make a name for himself, to grab power, to grab riches, all of that. But he resisted. And when God called him to to exercise his kingship by going to the cross, by facing the deepest fears he could experience on the cross, Jesus still entrusted himself to God and walked through that cross in full obedience, giving up everything for you and for me. And the good news is, you say, well, that's great. Jesus did it, but so where does that leave me? Well, the good news is that on the cross, Jesus took all of our acts of unfaith, not trusting God, all of our idolatry, all of our disobedience, all of our fear, Not just of King Solomon, not just of the kings, but all of us. And he took it into himself. He took into himself all of the destruction and chaos we we bring about in our world, in our relationships, when we choose to go our own way, trust ourselves. All the broken seats, spike seats of our life. He takes that all into himself, deals with it, pays the highest price in his death, and then speaks forgiveness over us. We who don't act often in good faith towards God. So then rather than wagging a finger at us, he says, you can come because I paid this price. And you can trust God. Doesn't the cross make you want to trust God? I could trust a king who will give up everything for me, even though he didn't have to. That's a king and that's a God I really want, I really need, and I can really trust. And so this morning, Jesus invites us to trust him. It's a simple message, right? 
Maybe you're here and it would be for the first time that you would really kind of throw your lot in with Jesus. Say, I'm going to trust this king. You know, maybe you're at a place and you know that you know what your gods are and you know they're failing you. Or you know that they're enslaving you. It's taking more and more and you're getting less and less security and satisfaction out of it. Maybe your life's unraveling or you're seeing it unravel into other people around you. Jesus says, trust me. I am the king you can trust. Or maybe you're a follower of Christ and you've been a follower for several years, but you're accumulating some indiscretion in your life. And you may be going, it's not a big deal. I got it. It's fine. Ah, Jesus says, would you come and bring that to me and trust me? Trust me. Or maybe you just find fear starting to creep in and you're wondering, is this Jesus thing really going to pan out? Is this a good idea? I'm wondering. And you're tempted to look to the wisdom of the world. Jesus says, would you trust me? Wherever you're at, this is what I think Jesus says. I love you. I care for you. I made you. I died for you. And I'm here with you now. I see the places of your fear. I see the places of your enslavement. I see the places of your temptation. And I'm inviting you to come to me, to trust me with those. Don't trust horses. Don't trust gold. Don't trust Wall Street. Trust in Jesus. And so the question really for you and for me is, will you? Will you trust him? Will I? Will I trust him? It might be for the first time this morning that you would really say, I do trust. It might be for the hundredth or thousandth time that you'd say, I trust him. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And as they come up, I'm just going to put some questions up on the, on the screen just to kind of help you kind of think through, where am I at with this? How might I be responding to Jesus' invitation in light of this story?